0: Well, good morning. Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. So there are certain aspects of the Bible that everybody seems to be familiar with, right? Even those who would say uh, they care nothing about the Bible or applies nothing to their life, uh, even most of those people would be familiar with the the famous stories, the, the David and Goliath, the Daniel and the lion's den, and then there are things like the Lord's Prayer or the Last Supper," things that people are just generally familiar with. They've heard of it, maybe they know a little bit about it. And then included in that list, I think, are the Ten Commandments. Everyone seems to at least have heard the phrase, the Ten Commandments," and, and, and would, you know venture to say that they are somewhat important to Christianity. And then surely, within Christianity, everyone knows. The ten Commandments. Maybe some of you at some time past in your life, memorize them. One to ten, right now, on the spot, you could rattle them off right away. Most Christians can probably rattle off a few, give it a run, maybe, maybe get more than half, maybe not in the right order. Um, maybe, maybe not. So with that said, why then am I Right now, looking forward to preaching on a passage that everyone already seemingly knows about. Well, the reason is that Exodus 20 is by and large one of the most misunderstood texts as it relates to current day. Beginning with the fact that nowhere in the passage are these referred to as the Ten Commandments. I'll get to more on that in a second. But first, if I were to ask you, you know, we'd zoom right into your living room and get you on the screen, split screen, and say, um, hey, are, are the Ten Commandments, do they matter for the church today? What would you say? And why? Do the Ten Commandments matter today? Before we break into the passage, I want to give two prominent, popular, wrong answers to that question. The first would be, and, um, um, yes, that the Ten Commandments matter today because that is the scorecard that God uses to see if you're in or you're out. Th- these determine whether you are a good person. This is the litmus test. You got your do's and you got your don'ts. Good people go to heaven. Bad people go to hell. The prominent and wrong view of the Ten Commandments. I think it's held by what we would consider nominal Christians, kind of ones who are generally associate themselves as Christians but aren't really that active in the faith. It's kind of a works based view that, again, is more cultural than it is Christian, and it's held by many just be a good person, all right? Like, just try and be a good person, follow these rules, and if you follow them well, you get rewarded. If you break them, you get punished. And the second prominent, popular, wrong answer to that question is, generally in response to the first, no, the Ten Commandments are old covenant Jesus fulfilled the law. We are not saved by works. We are saved by faith alone. And that was Old Testament law for Israel. But now we are people under grace. Um, And so yeah, Ten Commandments were part of the story. But they have no binding authority on the church today. You might hear this from more active um, church, good Protestant Christians. I wonder if I asked you that question three minutes ago, would you have answered in one of those ways or or somewhere on that spectrum? I'm not, not shaming anyone. I mean, to be honest, I probably would have answered and somewhat related to that second wrong answer for a significant part of my Christian life growing up. So I return to the question, do the Ten Commandments matter for the church today? The answer is an emphatic yes, but not to determine whether or not you're saved. Rather than just tell you, man, I wanna show you how these ancient words are stunningly relevant today. Um, We won't be covering Exodus 19, uh, but in that chapter, just to sum it up quickly, uh, the nation of Israel traveling through the wilderness, they arrive to the base of Mount Sinai And a camp at the base of the mountain. And as we've seen, it's been a real kind of up and down journey for uh, the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And, And Moses takes an initial trip up to the top of Mount Sinai. But then God tells him to go back down. And to stand with all the people of Israel. Because God is about to speak to everyone. And it's a big moment beginning in Exodus 20. Because it's the first time in the book of Exodus that God speaks to the whole nation. Previously, he just spoke to Moses, who then spoke to the people, but now all will hear what he has to say. It's in Exodus 20 where we find, to quote the title of the famous Francis Schaefer book, God is there and he is not silent. And we're going to start with Exodus 20, just verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. All right, we've got to stop there. Got to kind of cut it off there, because the first thing that gets misunderstood about this passage are these two opening verses that often just get skipped over. But before we get to any of the commands, I want to talk about what I mentioned earlier. That there in verse 1, they are described as the words God spoke to Israel. This is how Moses described them. It's how the early church viewed them in, in calling them the, the Decalogue, right? Greek word, deca meaning ten, root word logos meaning word, the ten words. Somewhere along the line, I don't, honestly didn't look up when, it kind of shifted, but at some point they started becoming known as the Ten Commandments. And it's a subtle change, ten words to ten commandments, but I do think it impacts the way we view them. In my study for uh, particularly these sermons in particular, that there's a short book that just came out called The Ten Commandments, uh, written by Peter uh, Lightheart, uh, was unbelievably helpful in unpacking this passage for me. Um, I'll be referencing him throughout. Um, but he said the irony in his title for the book is that the phrase The Ten Commandments is not the best way to view the Ten Commandments. Because the passage never refers to them as such. Rather, he writes that these ten words are not like a governor talking to the citizenship, like we're we're hearing from the governors each and every day, kind of talking about the law of the land. It's not so much like that, but more like a father speaking to his son. Throughout Exodus, God has referred to the nation of Israel, not just as his people, but as his son. You recall in Exodus 4, when God had Moses say to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. And now the father is speaking to the son about what's most important. I mean, just think about it. Wouldn't we say that a loving father today raises his son or daughter by by sharing what's most important in life? This is our values. This is what we care most about. This is what we're about. And those conversations aren't commands, but, but they're declarations. Not not, not to limit them or box them in, but to empower them, to, to educate and inspire. I wonder if that changes things and changes the way you hear this passage and think about these 10 words like it did for me. Not distant commands from a distant God, but 10 words from a loving father to a young son. That's not all these opening verses do. They also declare that these ten words are not merely rules to follow in order to earn the Father's love, but it's literally the direct opposite. These ten words come after Israel has already been saved and rescued. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. It's a massively important statement Because that's the pattern of the whole Bible that leads us to the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That God frees his people by his grace, by his doing, not our doing, not because we're so good. And now that he has saved them, he teaches them how to live. If there's nothing else you remember about the Ten Commandments, remember this. They are given after the exodus. Not before. And this is the gospel pattern seen through scripture. God saves us out of his deep love and grace. He draws us to himself. And because of that salvation, he tells us and empowers us and equips us to obey his rules. It's grace and then law. It's salvation then obedience. You reverse those two and you lose Christianity. All right, I know that's a big setup, but if we're not clear on those opening verses, then the 10 words become vastly different, and we'd miss the point. So now we're ready to to walk through the 10 words. We're gonna cover four this week, and then pause and cover the final six next week. But let's go, Exodus 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Word number one, no other gods. The foundational problem with the human heart from the beginning of time is idolatry. It's serving false gods in the place of the one true God. And what separated Israel from ancient Egypt and really every other ancient people is that they were called to serve one God, not many gods. We we, we saw when we went through the plagues that that Egypt was a polytheistic culture, had many gods. And polytheism was worship that was rooted in fear. That that, that, that the gods had to be appeased. You had to keep them happy, right? Right? You, you have to keep the gods happy because if they get mad at you, man, just watch out. That's when they lash out. And, and life is just this constant pressure of not upsetting all the gods in all the different areas, which was hard because there was a ton of them. And we know that Israel was influenced by their time in Egypt. 400 years worth of time. And that their hearts had been captured by many of these gods and now their father is saying to them, "Son, word number one: no other gods." When our modern minds think of idolatry, we we, we tend to think of um, kind of other religions, either ancient or modern day, in different parts of the world that, that worship physical idols. Right? I, I doubt that many or any of you have been tempted to have or build shrines in your basement of other gods. But make no mistake, we have as many gods in modern America than there was in ancient Egypt. It's just that our postmodern culture thinks that we're further along and we're more progressive and we're more educated than those ancient peoples because we don't call them gods. But an idol is anything that we cherish or value above the one true God. As Tim Keller says, it's when you take even a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. And the premier gods of secular society are money and fame and beauty and your Public perception of your image or comfort or power or security. it's, It's the things that people are prone to look to and even rely upon for supreme happiness and identity. Are you ruled by fear, laying awake at night thinking about the opinion of others? Do you get overly anxious over how your parents will evaluate a decision you've made in life? Are you ruled by the kind of feedback you get with likes and comments on your social media? Does that define you? Is your joy determined by how financially secure you are, how much of a nest egg you have kind of built up in uncertain financial times? You see, the idols of the ancient world, they're not gone. They've just been given a makeover. But just like the ancient world, false gods today strike fear into those who serve them, and, and they like to work together. They, they play off one another to raise anxiety. You see, false gods have strength in numbers. Even the modern philosophical doctrine that can be summed up as, quote, follow your heart. you just got to find yourself. That's rooted in the idolatry of self. in that way you, you are your own God. But it's when we submit to the one true God that we see that following your heart was the problem in the first place. You're created to worship but your true self will only be free when you worship the one true God. And this first word It's not the Father trying to limit you. It's the most freeing word there is. And when Jesus came, He said He didn't come to condemn the world, but He came that you might have life. He didn't come to put a burden on your back with a bunch of rules you have to follow. He came to give you rest for the weary. And His arrival isn't to free you from obedience, but to free you into obedience. Word number one, no other gods. Let's keep going. Verses four through six. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Word number two, no images. What's most interesting about this word is that many, including me, have historically kind of just associated this word, this commandment, with images of God that was prohibited. And it became kind of this debate. Is it okay to have images or sculptures of Jesus or the Father in your church or your house? But read it again. It, that's not what it says. It says you may not make for yourself a carved image, period. Images of what? Anything that is in heaven or on earth. So, so what does this mean then? I mean, no images? I mean, just I mean, not to mention in the coming chapters, God will give instructions to Moses in building the tabernacle that will include images of various sorts. So, what is the second word referring to then? It's actually pretty simple. God is not prohibiting all images, He's prohibiting making an image that is for the purpose of bowing down and worshiping the image itself. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Bow down, not just meaning the physical action, but the heart of worship that causes one to bow. And it hits at the fact that there is a desire, an innate desire in mankind to worship and to kind of look for tangible things that they can see even that when they know that um, an object is just a representative of something, they can't see. And so kind of hang with me here. Um, even in modern religions um, or places where people have physical, actual shrines of a god that they worship. No one actually believes that the god is that piece of wood or the god is that piece of bronze. But they worship the object because to them, it's a direct representative of that God. And we know this was on the hearts of Israel because it won't be long after this that the whole nation will pressure Aaron in making a golden calf once they get nervous that Moses is gone too long. This, this second word is a kind of tragic foreshadowing of what's coming. God says, I cannot be worshipped through an icon or image that can be seen, even if that image in our minds is supposed to be representative of Jesus. In his book, Lightheart says, quote, when Christians seek Jesus through an image, they're looking for God in the wrong place. And this isn't just kind of an ethereal warning, God is detailed here. He says, he says it arouses his jealousy. Okay, Not the kind of petty jealousy that we often have towards others, but a righteous jealousy that he has claimed to because of the covenant that he has made with Israel. It's the jealousy that is rooted in love. Knowing that Israel will not be satisfied with anything else. And he's jealous for their true joy. I think it's similar in some ways to the righteous jealousy that a husband and wife have for one another. That when they enter into that covenant of marriage, that they have rightful claim over one's primary affection and attention in this world. It's the jealousy that is rooted in covenant love. Again, Lightheart says that to worship an icon of God as opposed to God himself is like cherishing a photo of your wedding day while neglecting your spouse. The God speaking to Israel is a God who reveals himself as a word to be heard, not an image to be seen. And just as God spoke creation into being in Genesis chapter 1, so here God is speaking a nation into being with these ten words. This is the constitution for the nation of Israel. Genesis 1, the birth of a a creation. Exodus 20, the birth of a nation. Both spoken into being by the word of God. And when Jesus came and lived on earth, he was the word that became flesh. He was seen and we saw his glory. And Jesus said that in seeing him, the disciples see the Father. But let's remember now, okay? Jesus has since ascended to the throne. Jesus is no longer visibly present in this world. And so this word still applies to us. That Jesus is with us by His Spirit. And someday we will see Him face to face. But not yet. We are still a people who hear and respond to the word of God. We are a people as the church who speak about the word so that others may hear and respond in faith. Word number two, no images. Let's keep going, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Word number three, no taking God's name in vain. If you think about names today, always names are labels that identify us. Names are uh, things that distinguish us as whole persons made in the image of God. And this is why someone's name it's the first thing you often learn about them. That immediately when you meet, you exchange names. Hi, I'm Aaron. Nice to meet you. And we're willing to give our name to complete strangers, right? It's not private. It's not intimate. It's, it's common. Everyone has a name. It's how we label one another. It's how we identify one another. It's how we distinguish one another. And yet common does not not mean unimportant. Our names are personal. They are part of us. And yet, they have been given to us. We are all passive recipients of our names. We had no say in the matter. All right, Your parents did not consult you in the womb to see if you'd be okay with the name they're about to give you. All right, They just fought about it amongst themselves for nine months and then decided for you. And in the ancient world... The hundreds, even thousands of gods were identified by their name. Which God do you believe in? Which God are you worshiping? What's its name? That's why at the burning bush in Exodus 3, when God gave Moses his mission to go to Egypt and bring out to the people of God, Moses' first question was, um, okay, so they're, they're going to want to know what your name is. Which God are you? What's your name? To which God responded. Again, a favorite verse in the Bible. I just want another reason to be able to say it. Exodus three fourteen. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am, has sent me to you. God is the one who is, who eternally and forever just is. Which means a lot of things, including this. God is the only being that has never been given a name because he never had a beginning. Contrasted with every person who has ever lived, every false god that has ever existed, every creature that has ever existed has been given a name except God, Yahweh, the great I Am. So taking God's name in vain is taking the one name in the universe that has not been given and using it as a witness to false statements To use God's name in vain is to treat it as kind of just weightless, to carry no weight or no purpose when you say it. In a very real sense, every sin we commit is treating God's name carelessly because it shows that our hearts treat God lightly, that we don't regard Him, that we don't regard His rule or His reign with any weight. So sin is disrespecting the name of God in a general way and sinfully invoking his name as just weightless is disrespecting the name of God in a specific way. You know, I was thinking about this, that um, growing up in a Christian home, I always associated this kind of third word as the reason why my parents would tell, my brothers and I, uh, we do not say, oh my God. Or even worse, if in a moment of surprise or frustration, we don't say, Jesus Christ. We don't say, dear Lord, when we're frustrated or surprised. I never even understood the fact why so many people just say that in those ways in general, but that's kind of a different topic. But thinking back on that, while it is true that we should not say these things, The phrases themselves aren't the primary problem. It's the careless heart with which lead to the words that treat God's name as careless. So even if you were to say, well, okay, when I say those things, I obviously don't mean to disrespect God. I just say it, oh my God, it's just a phrase that's always been on my mind. You hear it all the time. It gets thrown around. I kind of just say it without thinking about it. And yet, therein lies the point, doesn't it? Brother, sister, if you did have the proper weight associated with God's name, Yahweh, the great I Am, you would invoke it in ways that are proper towards Him in worship, not as a throwaway. James in his epistle says that out from the heart the mouth speaks. The words we say or don't say, whether we like it or not, are indicators of the heart. And God cares much about His name and the name of His eternal Son, Jesus, who was treated carelessly, who humbled Himself even with His great name, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him, look, the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Word number three, no taking God's name in vain. All right, let's look. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Word number four, remember the Sabbath. This fourth word is significant for multiple reasons. Um, It's the longest of the words. It's the most detailed. It gives the most nuanced discussion. But also, it's the first of the two do's in the ten words. So eight of the ten are don'ts, including all the ones we've seen so far. But the fourth is a do. Do remember the Sabbath day. Again, picture a loving father saying to his son or daughter, here are the things you need to stay away from so that you can fully enjoy the things you are to lean into. And with God as a father over his son Israel, the first positive declaration is to set aside time to rest and remember how much he is loved and cared for by his father. Some of you know that Moses will repeat the 10 words in Deuteronomy chapter 5 near the end of his life and kind of his final uh, address to Israel. Before they enter the promised land. And a couple of the commandments are worded differently, differently in Deuteronomy 5 than they are in Exodus 20, including this one. Pastor Tony Merida says this about it. The quote will be on the screen. Notice that this commandment is based out of creation. In Deuteronomy, the commandment is modeled after God's provision in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. So, in Exodus, it is related to God's model of rest in creation, and in Deuteronomy, it is related to redemption. God's people are therefore called to remember God, the Creator and Redeemer, on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is one of those things that does get a lot of attention uh, throughout the rest of the Bible story, and cert- certainly throughout church history. Uh, in the New Testament, it will be by that time completely abused and manipulated by the Pharisees in Jesus' time. And Paul will say to the churches in his letters, specifically at Colossians, that in many ways the Sabbath has been fulfilled by Christ. But fulfilled does not mean canceled. That while the civil requirements associated with it are no longer binding on the church like they were for Israel, we are still called to find our spiritual rest in Christ above um, everything else. We are meant to find our emotional and spiritual rest in him, but the apostles and the early church were also very adamant about keeping the Sabbath in the New Covenant. While changed, it was not canceled. It changed from the seventh day of the week to the first day and became what the church began to call the Lord's Day, the day of the resurrection, the day set apart for the gathering of the people of God to worship together and to glorify God in our gathering by remembering God, our Creator and Redeemer. And while we ought not to be legalistic about the Sabbath or what the Lord's Day should or shouldn't entail, the intentionality of rest, physical rest, is still significant, not only for our good, to stop and just remember God, but it's also a witness to the world. So going back to the Old Testament, um, Israel was the only kingdom in the ancient world that was known to have a full day of rest built into the law of the land. It was so contrary to the human sense, right? That you, um, because the human sense, especially in the ancient world, is you can't let up. That would make you weak. That would make you vulnerable. You always got to be working, always got to be strengthening, always got to be going, no days off. And yet, this entire nation observes a full day of rest every single week, reminding them and anyone else looking on that God is in control, that God is sovereignly ruling and reigning, and they can rest because God is God and they are not. And each week after a full day off, They were able to testify by waking up the next morning and seeing God is still in control. The world is still spinning without our contribution. And so in that way, it's not that much different than today. We are still, maybe even more so, in a world that has the mindset of go, go, go. Be the hardest workers. Never stop. No days off. Take control of your own fate. You are the master of your own destiny. To rest is to be weak. And so in the church, we're called to stand against the tide. To rest. Because we are under the sovereign control of God. And God is God. And we are not. I heard a pastor once say, it's kind of stuck with me ever since, that that he and his wife have built in Sabbath rhythms into their life of one hour a day, one day a week, one weekend a quarter, and one week a year, set aside for the purpose of rest and remembering God. Well, due to time, we're going to have to pause here. We'll do part two, the final six commandments next week. But to just bring this sermon to a close, I'll conclude by asking the same question we had at the beginning. Do the Ten Commandments still matter for the church today? I hope you have seen that they absolutely do but not because the commands themselves tell you how to be saved, but they matter first and foremost because each and every one of them reveal the person and work of Jesus Christ. That this father-son talk is not primarily meant to be telling what you need to do in order for God to accept you, but they kind of cue us in to the ultimate father-son talk between God the Father and Jesus the Son and to enter into that relationship because Jesus is the only one who heard this talk and followed them perfectly. And this Jesus then laid down his life to die for the times and the people who fall short, including me to provide and offer forgiveness and give righteousness by His work through faith. And it's only by repenting of sin and placing our faith in Christ that we are empowered to pursue and live out these words today. That you, brother or sister, in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can serve no other gods, That you are empowered to not trade him in for images. That you are empowered to avoid treating his name carelessly. That you are empowered, finally, to find your rest in the creator and redeemer to the glory of his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It's always timely, always needed, always exactly the words we need to hear, Lord. And we thank you for the 10 words. We thank you for the first four that just orient our eyes towards you, Lord. We thank you for freeing us through these words and empowering us through the work of your son to pursue them for your glory and our joy. And it's in your name we pray, amen.